Shalom, and thank you for listening to sermons from Tikvat Israel, a Messianic synagogue in the heart of Richmond, Virginia. Listening to the podcast is great, but if you want the full experience, please join us on Zoom or in the building Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for our worship service. For the Zoom link, please contact tikvatdirector at gmail.com or contact us on our website, tikvatisrael.com. There you can also support the ministry, learn more about Messianic Judaism, and find helpful resources. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of His Word. Shabbat Shalom, everybody. So I gotta admit, I feel a little verklempt. I feel a little touched because we had technical difficulties today and the songs from the worship team and the prayers could not be posted on the screen. But what I observed is that the longer that the liturgy went on and as the worship team sang the songs, none of you were looking at the screen to see when the words were gonna come back up because all of you were drinking from the fountains of salvation. Yeah. Ushavtem mayim besason mimaena hayeshua. A beautiful, beautiful verse from the prophet Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3. And with joy you shall draw forth water from the fountains of salvation. Amen? Amen? We are going to use our imaginations this morning. You see this mountain up here? Right now, it's pointing at about one o'clock. I want you guys to imagine it's pointing more toward 12 o'clock. So just turned a little counterclockwise, all right? So that this is north, this is south, this is west, and this is east, okay? We're going to pretend that this is the land of Israel and Judah. Does everybody see this kind of patch of snow right here? This is going to be the Dead Sea. Jerusalem would be right about here. We're going to go up. You see this white slope here? We're going to go up the Jordan River. Everybody see this dark patch of trees? That's going to be the Sea of Galilee. Okay? We good? Technical difficulties, schmechnical difficulties. So we got the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, the Dead Sea, okay? The Galilee is here. Judah is here. Israel's about, I mean, uh, pardon me, Jerusalem's about right there. Everybody following along? All right, everybody following along? We got it. We got this. It's always an honor to be up here again with you all. Such, such an honor. 
I want to impress upon you all, whether you're here presently, whether you're on Zoom, or whether you're listening by podcast, if you remember absolutely nothing else that I say during this entire sermon, there's something heavy on my heart that I want you to remember. Eat at Bubbala's, Pensacola's greatest restaurant. Thank you for allowing me to unburden myself. Eat at Bubbala's, Pensacola's greatest restaurant. Let me impress this upon you again. Everybody repeat after me. Eat at Bubbala's, Pensacola's greatest restaurant. Let's say it together. Eat at Bubbala's, Pensacola's greatest restaurant. And now I want each of you to give yourselves a good pat on the back as I give you all a round of applause because in only 90 seconds, each and every one of you here has just learned 2,000 years of Jewish biblical history. Well done. Well done. Well done. Eat at Bubbala's, Pensacola's greatest restaurant. E, eat, Egypt, at, A, Assyria, B, Bubbala's, Babylonians, Pensacola's, P, Persians, greatest, G, Greeks, restaurant, R, Romans. Do not try to memorize the dates that I'm going to spout out. I, I just want to give you a rough idea of the time frame for each one. First, let's stretch our minds a little bit. Now, from the, the life of Yeshua to this day, today, November the 20th, 2021, it's been roughly 2,000 years, okay? We good? Now, I want you to imagine the time of the life of Yeshua and stretch your mind back 2,000 years. So the same time frame between now and the life of Yeshua Stretch your minds from the life of Yeshua back to 2000 BC or 4,000 years ago. The pyramids of Egypt were already built. Okay? Today we're going to go by rough times, as I said. We're going to go by rough times. Okay? Uh, and I have completely lost my place. Ah, yeah, here we go. Okay. E, eat. The Egyptians. Now, this is roughly the time of the Torah, the time of the patriarchs, the time of all the stories in Torah, Moses and the Exodus and wandering in the desert. The next word is at the Assyrians. This is roughly the time of Isaiah and the rise of the Assyrian Empire. So, 900 to 700 years before the birth of Yeshua. We're, we're going to spend some time here later on in the sermon. The next is B, Bubbalas, the Babylonians, roughly 700 to 500 years 
before the birth of Yeshua. Again, don't try to remember these dates. I'm just giving you a rough time period. The Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar invade the southern kingdom of Judah. They destroy Solomon's temple and they send the Jewish elite into exile in Babylon. This is the time where Jeremiah and Ezekiel were on the scene. The next is P, Pensacola's, the Persians. The Persian Empire under King Koresh, King Cyrus, frees the Jewish exiles in Babylon to return to Jerusalem. This is the time of the books, the books of Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Zechariah. Then we have greatest, G, the Greeks. Roughly 300 years to 100 years, roughly before the birth of Yeshua. So from our time, present day, around the time when the Declaration and of Independence was being signed in the Revolutionary War. Okay? Roughly 300 to 100 years, roughly before the birth of Yeshua, we have the Greeks. Within this time frame is Antiochus IV and the Maccabean revolt against the Seleucid Greeks and the events which we now celebrate as Hanukkah. Exactly. And then we have the occupation of the Romans, R for restaurant. And it is, of course, during this time that Yeshua lived on earth. All right. Let's review. This is the border of the land of Israel. This is the Mediterranean Sea. This is the Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea, okay? Now, at this time, the Assyrians were a major, major fierce military force. They would have been centra uh, centralized up here in modern-day Syria. They were a fierce military force that absolutely ravaged the Middle East in their day. At this time in Jewish history, the Jewish people were divided into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Again, Jerusalem about right here. Okay? The Assyrian war machine trampled its way south and absolutely tore to shreds under their boots the northern kingdom of Israel. The Assyrians stopped short of continuing their way south into Judah. The Assyrian Empire at this time basically implodes from within, leaving the new bully on the block, Babylon, to come in, finish off Assyria, trample through the land that Assyria had conquered, and destroy Judah. They destroyed Solomon's temple, and they exiled the Jewish elite from Judah to Babylon. Okay? Now... This is really interesting. Listen to this. If you, can, if you can grasp this, you'll understand so much about Jewish history in Old Testament times. We observe a big difference between the way the Babylonians treated their exiles and the way the Assyrians treated their exiles. 
the Jews who were exiled to Babylon were allowed to stay together as a homogenous group. And this was strategic for the Babylons, for the Babylonians, because the Babylonians figured, oh, if we can keep these people and families together and actually give them some sort of privilege and status, even if that privilege and status is you know, low on the totem pole, they will at least feel some sort of satisfaction and benefit, and thus they will not revolt. This is why the Jewish exiles were able to come back to the land during the time of P, Pensacola's, the Persians. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, the Assyrians trampled across the northern kingdom of Israel and literally wiped it off the map. Unlike the Babylonians, the Assyrians did not allow captives of the same ethnic group to stay together because they figured that if a homogenous group of the same ethnicity who spoke the same language could communicate, well, then they could organize and then they could revolt. Thus, the Assyrians, what they did is they broke up tribes. They broke up families. Husbands from wives, children from parents, brothers from sisters. And they would separate them as far as they could from each other across their empire. While at the same time bringing in exiles from other conquered territories to settle within the indigenous population. And thus, we have the explanation for the origin of the 10 lost tribes of Israel. The 10, 10 of the 12 tribes occupied the northern kingdom of Israel. But once the Assyrians got a hold of them, they scattered them to the wind, as it says in the Bible. And the 10 tribes were lost to history. So, what was left in the remaining land that was central Israel were the Israelite remnants of the very poor, unskilled workers. And they were complete strangers to these new captives who were also remnants from their homeland. We together? You guys understand? Does that make sense? So you have all these people of different ethnicities who speak different languages forced to live in the same space. Now, again, let me give you a time frame. This is 700 years before the birth of Yeshua. 700 years, brothers and sisters, is a long time. 700 years from today. Europe was being ravaged by the bubonic plague, the Black Death in the mid-Middle Ages. The Renaissance had not happened yet. And sadly, history has also shown us the grim fact that 700 years is also enough time for institutionalized racism to take hold. 
What do I mean by an institutionalized? Racism and ethnocentrism that is encouraged by the religion, encouraged by the leadership, institutionalized racism came to a brutal form in the anti-Semitism all throughout Europe that exists still today, especially during the Nazi regime and the final solution to the Jewish problem. Racism against African-Americans here in this country. Racism against Native Americans the whole entire history of this country, reverse racism, North Koreans against South Koreans, the Rwandan genocide of the Hutsis and the Tutsis, the Yugoslavian genocide between the Croatians and the Serbians. There are too many examples to state, isn't it? Back to the Holy Land and after the Assyrian conquest. Over 700 years, the remaining remnant of this shattered Jewish territory somehow managed to teach this other remnant of other fractured nations about the God of Abraham, Moses, Jacob, Isaac. They adopted Hebrew as their language. Over time, the new arrivals intermarry with these Jews and start to self-identify as Jews themselves and believers of the stories, the customs of the Torah. They built their own temple, Jerusalem down here, Dead Sea, Jordan River. They built their own temple on Mount Gerizim, about right here. Just like 200 years later, the returning Jewish exiles in Babylon will rebuild the Jerusalem temple. Now, all this sounds to our modern ears very well and good, doesn't it? But whoa, Nelly, if only it could have been so pretty. To the Jews returning from Babylon, the exiles from the Babylonian exile, remember, they remained together. They only intermarried within their own pure Jewish bloodlines. They were the aristocratic class. So when they returned, they did not see their northern former Israelite countrymen as faithful heroes, heroes who have kept alive the Torah, who have adopted and intermarried and had children with ethnic foreigners, and had who also managed to teach the Torah and worship Hashem in a temple built on Mount Gerizim. Oh, no. I'm very sad to say that the returning Jewish elite pictured them as anything but faithful heroes. They saw them as the lowest of the low, shameful half-breeds who had defiled their once pure Jewish blood by daring to mix and intermarry not just with foreigners, but with the refuse of a pagan conquered peoples. And worse than that, they dared to defile the very words of the Torah, which commanded that Hashem be worshiped upon Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. 
And thus, to the returning exiles from Babylon, these folks were taking Hashem's name in vain and defiling the Jewish faith with a blasphemous cultic system in a tool shed of a temple built on Mount Gerizim in what was conquered Israelite territory. And now, brothers and sisters, you all understand the background and origin story of the hated Samaritans. If you were to ask me, Wayne, oh, Wayne, you're a Richmondite. I'd say, well, well yeah, I mean, I, I live in a city called Richmond, but, but I'm an American. If you were to have said to a Samaritan, oh, you're a Samaritan, they would have said, well, I mean, yeah, strictly the, the, the land that we're, the area that we're on is called Samaria, but I'm a Jew. I'm a follower of the Torah. Brothers and sisters, in the gospel, Samaritan is an ethnic slur. The people who were Samaritans did not identify as Samaritans. They were faithful Jews to themselves. And in fact, those of you who have read any book in the Gospels, every single time, the next time you read the Gospels, whenever the narrator of the God, whenever they mention Samaria or going into Samaria, it's always with this, <clears throat> and then disciples, they had to go through Samaria. And there are parts in the Gospels where it just pulls no punches, and they say that disciples went around Samaria because... Pardon me. Remember, for a Jew to even interact with, much less touch, a hated Samaritan, it would, auto, it would automatically make that Jew ritually impure. That would be ritually, they would be ritually defiled if they even touched with their feet Samaritan ground. And while we're here, let's talk about that Samaritan ground. In my last sermon, I emphasized and emphasized and hopefully drove home how desperately dependent the Holy Land was on the rainy season for water. Again, there are no rivers like the Nile or the Tigris or the Euphrates. The only real bottle, oh, excuse me, body of water is the Dead Sea, where if you drink even an ounce of it, you are going to die of hypernatremia within the day. And the Jordan River, which is not a river, is more like a glorified creek. And the Jordan River exists in a valley. So the soil is way too rocky to irrigate, but even if you could irrigate it, it's in a valley. You can't irrigate a river uphill. So they had no way to get water except for during the rainy seasons. And if you didn't fill up your sister, your cistern in the rainy seasons, you're desperately dependent on rainwater or wells. But you see, brothers and sisters, this is the problem with having wells in the Holy Land. How many of you have ever um, visited a Caribbean island? 
Okay. How many of you have ever visited, um, oh, let's say the, the eastern border of Mexico, anywhere on the Andes Mountains? Okay, of course. <laughs> well, you know, if you've ever been in one of these places that pretty soon you get used to very small earthquakes, very small tremors. Why? Because all the Caribbean islands, all they are is old volcanoes, okay? They're small ones. They only last about five to 10 seconds, but you get used to them, okay? They don't cause any damage, but you feel them. In the early 90s, after I graduated from college, I was in my early 20s, and I enjoyed an internship to live in the Caribbean for a while and study tropical medicine. Now... <laughs> Aside from being woken up in my sleep every morning by sheeps and roosters, <laughs> I remember many a morning hearing a rooster crow rolling on my back. And if the screen was a window, of course, you know, it was an open window, okay? Many mornings I would wake up to a cow just staring at me like I'm uh, exhibit in a museum or something. Many mornings did I wake up to that. Okay, well, I also, of course, became accustomed to being jolted out of a deep sleep by very strong tremors, because of course, as I said, the Caribbean islands are all volcanoes. Uh, and unfortunately for our heroes in the Holy Land, this part of the Holy Land, runs along a fault line. So what that means is that these small, short trimmers could be very destructive, not because they would kill anyone on land, but because they would change the rocks under the land. Wells that had been there for centuries could cave in or close themselves off from underneath within seconds never to be open again. So whereas one morning your local well had all the water you could carry, the next morning it could be absolutely non-functional. And guess what? There goes your day. Because guess what you're going to spend your day doing? You're going to spend it walking miles and maybe miles to the next well in your region that might, by the time you get there, be going dry because everyone else is using it too. So to the Jews, the idea of the preciousness of fresh, drinkable water cannot be understated. Ushavtem mayim besason mimaeine yihashua. Isaiah 12, verse 3, and with joy, you shall draw forth water from the fountains of salvation. Con gozo, beberá agua de las fuentes de la salvación. I'm paraphrasing from John 4. Yeshua left the Judean countryside and went back to Galilee 
Yeshua had, scripture says this, had, like, oh gosh, to go through Samaria. He arrived at a part of Samaria where Jacob's well was. He sat by the well because he was tired from traveling. A Samaritan woman went to get some water. Yeshua said to her, give me a drink of water. So already we see Yeshua willingly, willingly entering into a land that defiled him, speaking to a less than unclean pagan, but to make it worse, a woman. Sisters, don't kill the messenger. Even if a Jewish man had interacted with a Jewish woman in Jerusalem, he risked being ritually defiled. But a Samaritan woman? The fact that he was even willing to defile himself further by drinking water from a Samaritan well offered by the unclean hands of an unclean Samaritan woman out of an unclean Samaritan jar in the minds of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Yeshua could not have stooped any lower. Continuing. The Samaritan woman asked him, how can a Jewish man like you ask a Samaritan woman like me for a drink of water? Institutionalized racism. Yeshua replied to her, if you only knew what God's gift is and who is asking you for a drink, you would have asked him for a drink and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you don't have anything to use to get the water. The well is too deep. So where are you going to get this living water? You're not more important than our ancestor Jacob, are you? He gave us this well. He and his sons and his animals drink from it. Yeshua answered her, everyone who drinks of this water will become thirsty again. But those who drink the water that I will give them will never thirst again. In fact, the water that I give them will become in them a fountain that gushes up to eternal life. And with joy, you shall draw forth water from the fountains of salvation. The woman told Yeshua, sir, give me this water, then I won't have to come here to get water. Yeshua told her, go to your husband and bring him here. The woman replied, I don't have a husband. Yeshua told her, you've told the truth when you say that you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and the man that you have now Ain't your husband. The woman said to Yeshua, I see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. But you Jews say that the people must worship in Jerusalem. 
And then Yeshua says what I think is some of the most beautiful words to ever come out of his mouth. Yeshua told her, believe me when I tell you, a time is coming when you Samaritans won't be worshiping the Father on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem, Mount Moriah. Indeed, the time is coming and it is here now. Yeshua said that the true worshipers of Hashem will worship him in spirit and in truth. The father is looking for people like that. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. In a temple or in your bathroom. In spirit and in truth. In spirit, ruach. And in truth, emet. God is spirit, Yeshua says. Those who worship him must worship in ruach and emet. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he will tell us everything. Yeshua replied to her, Who? Anihu, I am he. Beloved brothers and sisters, it is so profound that in the first few verses of Genesis, when the Lord is making the heavens and the earth, the spirit, the ruach of the Almighty, hovered above the waters, above the deep, and then creation began. And Messiah Yeshua blesses this simple, sinful woman with the truth, the emet, that the very same creative force, the ruach that moved over the face of the deep is living water from the fountains of salvation. I'm going to leave you this wonderful Shabbat morning with a thought. There are so many lessons that we can take from the story of the woman at the well. A series of sermons would not cover them all. Well, one very obvious one is definitely that Yeshua shows us by his actions that institutionalized racism of any sort has absolutely no place in his kingdom. Another lesson that we can take. Is that the woman, the well, the lowest of the low. Yeshua sought her. Yeshua came for her. Yeshua sought her. And wherever you are in your life, whether you are in the pit of despair, 
if you believe that you are just beyond the purity of his blood to wash you clean. Beloved, Yeshua is seeking you. And he wants to meet you exactly where you are. Shabbat Shalom.